continue looking at this idea of unity, and um, we're going to look at unity, genuine or fake. And uh, we're looking at, been looking at John 17 this morning, verses 20 to 23. Overall theme, certainly, of this text is unity. Uh, And I think... uh, Maybe this, in light of the current situation in our church, and you as a church family know uh, what some of the things have been going on, and it's probably this is a appropriate time to kind of just address some of this in a in a sense. I'm not going to get into uh, what has been said or done or in that sense, but uh, I want us to think about, talk about the kind of unity that God wants us to have and the unity that Christians often perceive or have, which is really not unity, as opposed to uh, uh, real, or uh, as opposed to uh, real, genuine unity. Um, in other words, I'm I'm kind of leaving the uh, the exposition of this uh, book of John here, and I'm going to do something I rarely do, and that's a little more topical in my message this afternoon. Uh, Most often people say they want unity. But what they're saying is they want a fake unity, which isn't unity at all. They would reject real unity while calling for it. And yet people who are either plotting or settling for fake unity don't really want it. They want some kind of credit for unity without really having it. And so this afternoon, we will first of all look at biblical unity. Biblical unity. We've seen some of that already here in John chapter 17. Because biblical unity is oneness, the same type of unity that God the Father has with his Son and the Holy, uh, and the Holy Spirit. We see that back in John chapter uh, 17, verse 11, as well as in our text this morning, uh, which was verse 21. And these three are one in nature or in essence, but also one in purpose. And the unity God expects or requires is to be found in a church. It's to be the mark of our church. And notice some of the verses that describe it. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Uh, chapter 15 and verse 6 says that ye may be with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I already gave you this morning, we talked and looked at 1 Corinthians 1.10, but let me repeat that verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Then you go to Philippians chapter 1, it says, Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be present, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit and in with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in Philippians 2 and verse 2, it says, Fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then in Philippians 3 and verse 16, Nevertheless, where to we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, 
let us mind the same thing. You kind of get the idea that Paul had the theme of oneness and unity on his mind in instructing the churches in his letters. So it's biblical unity is oneness. But unity is also called no division. It's no division. Romans sixteen seventeen says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, there, that there should be no schism in the body. First, or Paul wrote to Timothy that this was no other doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So this is not a unity that many churches expect, even though it's the only unity that you find in Scripture. It's what is expected and required of churches, but people are looking for something else, which in essence is to agree to disagree. And I think you know what I feel about agreeing to disagree. I don't care for that phrase. If there's something that's wrong, I'm just going to disagree. I'm not going to agree to disagree. And the scriptural unity could be called, as we term it today, unanimity. And since there is one doctrine and practice in the Bible, and the scripture is clearly presented, plain and understandable, then we should expect unity. Now the New Testament talks about diversity in the body. But that diversity is of gifts or giftedness. There's a variation of gifts in the church, but not a variation in doctrine or practice. There is one doctrine, one practice. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. A church should expect this kind of unity. But variation isn't unity, it's division. What sometimes people call unity is really actually division, real division, not unity. Fake unity is overlooking differences in doctrine and practice, which amounts to overlooking false doctrine and sin in order to just get along. And before I talk about how people practice fake unity because it's kind of the typical unity, I want us to reconsider why it is that people practice don't practice actual unity, that is biblical unity. Rather than someone saying he doesn't believe and practice biblical unity, he replaces it with fake unity and then says he's practicing unity. Well, worse than that, because of fake unity being considered or called real unity, uh, unity the one who... Uh, who believes and practices biblical unity is often portrayed as the spreader of division. So let's look at the requirements for unity. Now I want to consider these 
reasons, these possible reasons why people do not practice biblical unity, uh, despite the description of it and the requirement of it in Scripture. I'm going to list them here in this point, and then I'm going to talk about them uh, in more in detail. First of all, there, uh, the first requirement, it requires biblical and doctrinal clarity, clarity, which takes preparation, it takes study, it takes effort, because people, you know, many times aren't sure. They have doubts about what the Bible says, and so it, it takes effort to, to uh, have biblical doctrinal clarity. Secondly, it takes, it requires a lot of work and conflict. Because we deal with people who don't want to unify, but they want to cause division. And then thirdly, it requires accepting biblical unity and not a fake unity. Now, these requirements might even shrink the size of the assembly. Or to put away, uh, put it another way, might even shrink the numerical uh, numerical growth. That's just something that seems to be contrary to what we often think. It's uh, you know numerical growth is usually considered the primary factor of success. If a church is growing in numbers, that must be a successful church. You ever seen Joel Osteen's church? It's like a football stadium loaded of people. I wouldn't call that a successful church. Oh, he's got tons more people than we could ever imagine. And so numerical growth is not the, the, the thing that we ought to be looking at. And so it, it, uh, many times unity will bring an attack from those who accept and practice fake unity and treat it as like it's biblical when it's not. Like a lot of other biblical words or concepts or doctrines, I think unity has changed. As I mentioned this morning, it's been perverted or it's been dumbed down. It's been changed to something else for our present age. And what I see that is that people in general are completely fine with that. They think it's a good trend. Again, love is another word that's been twisted to something a long ways from what it actually is. If uh, you say someone's love isn't love, well, that's the worst violation than corrupting love itself. It's ironic that uh, it is unloving to say someone's love isn't love. Now, I know this to be true. God, however, is still going to judge us for love based on what he says And that's the same way with unity. I heard about a church that was far from being unified. It had at least two or three factions in it that got along because the church settled on something less than real, genuine Bible unity. To get along, not to unify, the leadership obviously tolerated the differences, treated them like they were allowable. And they the pastor probably said something like this for unity's sake we're going to get along which in fact was really for division's sake and men don't want to lose people we hate it when you know when we lose people when we see people not coming to church for whatever reason 
even if people aren't believing or doing right, would say, I'd rather have them in church. You know, losing people is the worst thing. For varied reasons, we see as, uh, as we, that we will see as we continue here. Now, this may surprise you. Because it's not something I believe any one of us wants. And I don't want to necessarily shock you, but I don't want it. And I'm not advocating it. But if you remember what 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, it may require a split. I said it. Okay? I'm not advocating it. I'm not saying we want it. I'm not promoting it. A split doesn't sound like unity to me. But sometimes, to get unity, a split must take place. Some think the split is worse than having not having unity. So they'll put up with false doctrine, they'll put up with false practice, just for the sake of unity. Which isn't really unity. Now let's go into an explanation of the re- these requirements. The first one, it requires biblical doctrine clarity which takes preparation, study, and effort because we have people who aren't sure or they have many doubts about the Bible. So we need to have biblical doctrinal clarity. To have biblical unity, at least two people have to believe that there is one God, one truth, and that they can know that and they can understand that truth. And this is how the Bible presents God. It's how the Bible presents truth and knowledge and understanding of truth. If someone doesn't even believe that that's possible in a typical way because he's never seen it practiced, he might assume, walking by sight and not by faith, that it can't be done. It's just like if we look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, having the same mind, having the same judgment, the same talking points, the same, we say, that's impossible. So why does God expect it? Are we going to believe the Bible? You see, knowing and understanding the truth takes preparation, it takes study, it takes effort. And at least one person needs to know what Scripture says to believe and to practice and then teach that. Many today are not willing to put in that kind of work. And they settle on not knowing, and so they accept division. And part of that effort is the courage to stand on the truth that one knows, even though it clashes with what everything else is going on in the world. Avoidance of the hatred of the world, as the world expresses that hatred in various ways, will allow and accommodate and then promote division where there is none. Now what I've observed is that churches fall short of the whole council and concentrate on their core beliefs. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about core beliefs? We sometimes would call them the fundamentals of the faith. You see, Christ was God. Deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, a salvation by faith, um, um, salvation by grace through faith. You know, uh, we believe this. We believe in the second coming. And we might say, if we can just all come together around these core beliefs, we'll have unity. 
And so we'll reduce everything. Remember what I said about essentials and non-essentials this morning? We'll reduce everything in this book, the 66 books of the Bible, and we'll reduce it down to just a, a few core beliefs. And we'll say, if we can just agree on these four, or these five, six, whatever it is, then we'll have unity. To come to unity on everything, from cover to cover, it takes very thorough teaching, taking everyone through everything, which starts with a biblical view of unity so that a church doesn't settle on something less than what God says. And notice also that liberty issues are non-scriptural issues. You know, there are people that say, well, I have liberty. I can do this or I can do that. The Bible doesn't say anything about not doing this or doing that. So I have liberty to do what I want. Those are issues that the Bible may be silent on or it's least judged to be liberty. Maybe like the dietary Laws or uh, examples given in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. But the problem with that is that doctrinal issues are becoming liberty issues. You can believe if Je- that Jesus was God, but I'm not going to believe that Jesus was God. That's my, I have liberty to do that. No, you don't. Because that's contrary to what the Bible says. Doctrinal issues are becoming liberty issues for the sake of getting along. We're just going to get along. So uh, you might believe this doctrine. I believe it this way. Folks, there's only one teaching in the scripture. But you know what? Churches are allowing more than one teaching on various doctrines and practices. If you don't do it that in, uh, if you don't do that in church, now consider you considered uh, you're considered to be violating some division of love or definition of love if you are not being tolerant of other people's way of looking at doctrine you're saying they're saying you're not loving well that's not love that's toleration So-called unity today is often being guided by giving liberty to believe and practice differently within the same assembly Men are doing that by making doctrinal and practical issues issues of liberty. That's a historic change. For instance, in eschatology, you know what eschatology is? It's the doctrine of last days, last things. It means in the same church you can have someone believing premillennialism and amillennialism. I can't even say it. I'm a premill guy, okay? I believe Jesus is coming before the millennium. And I'm pre-trib. I believe he's coming before the tribulation. But then you have churches that say, well, I'm pre-trib. He's mid-trib. He's post-trib. You know. And they're saying, okay, you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. But we're just going to get along. We're going to have a unity in our church. That's not unity. And it shouldn't be treated as such. Secondly, it requires a lot of work and conflict. 
Now, you'll have people that will challenge unity. They don't like a particular doctrine or practice, and they will challenge it through various steps of church discipline to have it their way. And that's where Titus chapter 3, 9 through 11 comes into into view here. And we'll just turn there and look at that. Titus chapter 3. Get to Titus chapter 3 here. Verse 9 says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is, such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. The word heretic there is speaking about a factitious person, someone who's, uh, who won't unify with the body, which is based on truth that's been agreed upon, that's been believed and practiced by the whole rest of the church. It might be that he just doesn't like submitting to authority. There are many of those out there, and they don't help, uh, we don't help them by allowing them to continue in that way. You know, many times a pastor will defer to a faction. The whole church sees it one way except for a small group or a small faction, and the small faction gets away with it because we defer to them. There are some who think that that is a type of humility. Humility isn't giving in to a faction. It's giving in to a faction... Uh, who is wrong. Humility is dealing with the faction and requiring that it come along with the others in the church or be gone. We humble ourselves before God, not before factions. A pastor friend of mine told this story. He said, we had a man in our church who believed that he was the window czar. No one could open or close the windows on his watch. He was a self-appointed usher. We didn't have the office of usher, but my friend said, but he gave himself that label. He was also mentally slow and disabled kind of way, and he could function in society, but anyone would know that he was slow. And we had another man who really liked to open the windows whenever he wanted. Personally, I didn't mind if he opened the windows when we needed air. It was not a separating issue. So he would open the window. The window czar would close them. He would open them. The czar would close them. He would open them. And finally, an argument, a quote, fight ensues. Neither side wants to give in. Several times, my pastor friend said he sat down with both factions and a few times with two or three witnesses. And each time they resolved something similar to And he said it like this, like second graders shake hands after a fight at recess. That's how they would kind of settle it. If you've been around school, you kind of know what that's like, okay? And he said, I would lecture the man, the one that uh, was opening the windows, say he could easily solve this by just understanding the disability of the one he was dealing with, and perhaps he was socially challenged, which I don't think is a separate category, actually, but in the end, the windows are wouldn't give up. 
And my friend says, we finally disciplined him out of the church. Both men died at a pretty uh, early age, not long after that. Now, many churches, if not most, would say, well, it's not necessary to go to that extreme. You know, for the sake of unity, let's not make a big deal out of this. Now, is that fake or real? You know, often churches don't have biblical unity because they're unwilling to do what it takes to have it. They don't work at it or face the the conflict necessary. Instead, they settle for something that isn't unity, and yet they call it unity. Whatever isn't biblical unity still isn't unity. Churches settle for a placebo when God wants the real thing. Thirdly, it requires accepting biblical th- unity and not a fake kind. Now, as I've already mentioned, it might shrink the size of the assembly, or put another way, it might restrict the numerical growth, which is considered to be a primary indicator of success or other future desired opportunities. And it brings attack on those who accept and practice fake unity and treat it like it's biblical when it's not. But again, listen, God requires unity. His word says it is to and can occur in each individual true church. And it can occur in our church. But it's a total, complete unity described several times in the New Testament based upon the truth. Now, as a teacher, I realize the most important quality of a good teacher is that he wants his students to learn. And so if you're going to get unity, you've got to want unity. You can't settle for the fake. A church that accepts something less than biblical unity isn't obeying Scripture because Scripture teaches it. You've got to want it. And if you want it, then you'll use the tools that God has given to church leadership and the church to have it. And since the Bible teaches it, it's God's will. Every believer should be praying for God's will to be done. And if you're praying for God's will, then you're praying for real, true, biblical unity in this church. Now again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. He says the body is one. What kind of body is that? Is that the body of Christ, which many people think is all over the world at one given time? No, the body of Christ is right here in this location. Oneness also requires diversity, which isn't division, but compatibility. People need to accept their God-given, ordained, uh, God-ordained role in the church. This can be taught. This can be learned. It's about fitting together. Paul emphasized love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the proper use of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. But the Holy Spirit divides the gifts as He will, but the church employs those gifts with love to the benefit of the whole body. Now, it works like the following. Someone doesn't want to fit in. It says he won't unless he is allowed to divide. The church accepts the division to keep him. You have to keep people to get bigger, you know. Uh, The church changes the definition of unity in order to keep more people and also to stay together on lesser terms. The toleration of false doctrine in practice becomes the new standard. 
It brings attack from those who accept and practice fake unity and treat it like it's biblical when it is not. There isn't a biblical teaching on fake unity. Actually, Scripture teaches against it. And since fake unity can't be defended with the Bible, a typical defense is to attack those who are holding on to, are holding true biblical unity alone. And it's kind of like calling good evil and evil good. The call for division, division unity and unity division. They say toleration of division is unity and toleration, uh, uh, tolerance of division is division. Divisive people are intolerant of division. Intolerance isn't allowed. And those who accept division encourage unity, accept that it is fake. It's not real. It's not true. Another attack is that unloving, it is unloving to expect people to get along. You expect me to agree with them? It's unloving not to accept a wide diversity of faith and practice. I'm saying that opponents of true identity will attack it for being too narrow, too unloving. And so the idea you'll see today are the core values, and those values are a very short list. It's not based at all on Scripture, because that won't be possible if the list gets too long. We're not going to have unity. If you expect more than core values, you'll be attacked. People, we need to realize that the church isn't a big tent that accepts many diverse beliefs and practices. It's a very narrow tent that accepts only what God's Word says. Where Scripture is silent, church members have liberty, but obedient churches won't settle for less than true biblical unity. Now my question is this. Do you want real unity or fake unity? You want to come to church where everyone smiles and laughs and has a good time? Or do you want to have genuine friendliness and brotherly kindness? You know, in many churches, people come to church, they put on the happy face in the parking lot, and then everyone is cordial and friendly when at home... It was just exactly the opposite. It was a completely different atmosphere. On the outside, everything looks good. But on the inside, there's dissatisfaction, there's bitterness, there's a harboring of sin, and there are selfish desires. Now, I believe we have some folks in Spooner Baptist Church who are genuine in their faith, genuine in their attitudes. They have the real joy of the Lord. But I'm afraid that will not describe everyone because although many are genuine, they're genuinely bitter. They're joyless. They don't even bother putting on the happy face when they walk you through the doors. And if you want true, genuine unity here in our church, I would urge you to examine your heart and get right with the Lord and then get right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God expects to have us to have true unity. And if we're not willing to do what God expects, then we're not in God's will. 
And so I trust that in some way this may be a help, an encouragement to you. And I trust that we will see the glory of the Lord magnified here at Spooner Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father in heaven.